Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Betsy Ross and the Making of America, Marla Miller. Marla Miller, author of Betsy Ross and the Making of America. Let's get right to it. Did Betsy Ross really make the first flag? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I should have guessed that you would start right there. Um, well, it's a complicated answer, which is why it takes a book to do it. It's, um, you know, in the family legend, there are various elements to her story and the legend that her grandchildren remembered about the making of the first flag. So in the book, I kind of go through bit by bit and try to figure out what of that holds up and what of it doesn't. But the short course is, I think there is a germ of truth at the bottom of all of that. And so I think she was there at the making. But what I try to convince people of in the book is that there really is no first flag. You know, the history of the flag is much more complicated than that, and there were a lot of false starts, and it took the flag a long time to really take the shape that we know today. But I don't really doubt that sometime in 76 or 77, she had a conversation with George Washington about stars, and that was really the uh, claim to fame that she wanted to make, is that Washington had a vision for this flag with six-pointed stars, and she, being an experienced artisan, folded up a piece of paper just so and snipped it and made a five-pointed star and convinced him that this was really the more efficient way to go from the point of view of the maker. Uh, how do we know the legend of Betsy Ross today? We know because, well, the reason most people think we know is that in 1870, her grandson, William Canby, gave a talk to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And in it, he gave a report, as he liked to call it, of the story that his grandmother used to tell about the making of the first flag. And so it's the eve of the centennial, and people are interested in the nation's origins. And it's also a moment in time when women are trying to get the vote. And so the story really took hold because it gave people, whether or not you were in favor of giving women the vote, uh, a way to place women in the nation's founding. So if you're um, a more conservative voter, you can place women in the pantheon of founders without giving them political rights. You don't have to confer the vote. But if you're interested in seeing women's roles in our uh, history given more prominence, Betsy Ross's story gave people a way to do that, too. So just at the right moment in time, six years before the centennial, he gives this talk, and the legend really took hold. Um, I like to credit Betsy's daughter, Clarissa, really with launching the legend because Clarissa, who became her mother's partner in their upholstery trade and flag-making trade in the early 19th century, sat her nephew down, sat Canby down in the 1850s and said, I want you to take this story down. And I really think Clarissa was seeing the history of the revolution take shape and so the first books on the history of the revolution begin to be published. The first books about the history of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in this period start to uh, see print. And lots of Philadelphians get mentioned in those stories. And I think Clarissa sees that her mother is not yet among them. And she wants to make sure that, uh, that Betsy Ross's story finds purchase as that history takes shape. What was the story that Betsy told to her daughter and her grandchildren? 
Well, the story as Candy reports it. Now, I like to say, you know, all parents know that their children get stories muddled. So I'm always careful to say this is not necessarily the story she told, but this is the story they remembered. And that is, I think, an important distinction. But the gist of it is that on a spring day in 76, preceding independence, uh, George Washington, Robert Morris, and George Ross came into her upholstery shop and asked her if she could help them make a new flag for the independence movement. And in the story, they come in with a sketch of what Washington has in mind. And as I mentioned, it had uh, six-pointed stars on a blue field. And Betsy points out to them that five would be a more efficient uh, technique. And they love it. In the legend, a specimen flag is made. It's run up a flagpole. People cheer. Uh, and after that, she is given a, uh, a sum of money to commence a flag-making business. And so that is the real story of the making of the first flag. And very little of that can be documented. But Betsy Ross certainly did become a flag maker during the Revolution. We have archival evidence of that. And there's rich archival evidence documenting her trade up until the last receipt that's known is 1813. And she's working into the 1820s. So this is the beginning of a 50-year career. You said there's, there is no first flag? Well... No. We don't have the first thing that she put together? We don't have it. No one has it. Uh, no one has ever claimed to have it, although there is a one-inch-by-one-inch one fragment in the, in the Connecticut Historical Society that claims to be a fragment of the very first flag, and I just saw that this week. That was very exciting for me, and I'm eager to look into that further. How'd they get it? Um, it was given to them in the early 20th century by people who had it in their family, and that's the story I want to figure out. Uh, if they were Pennsylvanians in the 18th century and in Connecticut later, I don't know. Um, so yeah, that's a good puzzle. But um, no, there's no surviving first flag, and at no time do people really make reference to it. The descendants don't talk about a first flag being had and then lost, so we really don't know anything about that. And and what I mean to point out by saying there really isn't one is that the process just isn't that linear. And so it took some time for the colonies united in rebellion to really transition to the stars and stripes. It took a long time for it to take the shape that we know today. And I'll also add that Betsy Ross's family in the legend do not claim that she arranged the stars in a circle. That, you know, when we talk about the Betsy Ross flag, that's something that some later generation grafted on, but is not part of the family legend. So she didn't actually make that claim. When she was older and telling the story to her grandchildren, was it known beyond her family that she made the first flag? No. When she died in 1836, there's a brief obituary in a local paper, and it just mentions that Elizabeth Claypool, her name at the time of her death, had passed away and that family and friends were invited to... Uh, you know, gather at the home of her daughter where she was then living. There was no interest really in the first flag at that time. Even in the 1840s, we start to see people as the anniversaries of revolutionary events begin to approach who are interested in what those stories were. But even in the 1840s, you see newspaper advertisements and articles 
inviting people to submit any information they have about the making of the first flags because it's a pity that we never recorded it. And I think some of that also might be what prompted Clarissa to sit her nephew down before she migrated out of the city in the 1850s to say, well, I know part of that story at least. But no, it, at the time, people just weren't interested in documenting that kind of thing. Flags didn't mean then what they have come to mean today. The way we think of flags as being national emblems and symbols of patriotism, that's more of a post-Civil War phenomenon. And so at the time, they were really utilitarian artifacts that were needed by ships at sea and troops in the field. So there, there wasn't quite the romance around them that there is now. Did you find other people through the years who have claimed to have made the first flag? Well, there are different people who make different sorts of claims. So there's a very important flag maker in Philadelphia named Rebecca Young, whose daughter Mary Pickersgill went on to make the Star Spangled Banner. So she's another very important flag making family. That's the Fort McHenry flag? The Fort McHenry flag, yes. And so they too, mother, daughter, pair, who are very interested in flag making over a long period of time, she claimed to have made the flag that flew over Washington's headquarters in Cambridge. And so that would be a Grand Union flag, a different design of the flag than the Stars and Stripes, the predecessor to that. But there's that claim. I haven't seen another claim for the first Stars and Stripes. But uh, Rebecca Young does have that claim to make the very first flag that represented the colonies united. Um, why would George Washington and company have chosen Betsy Ross to go to to make the flag? That's, that's an excellent question. And again, we need to move away from having chosen her because they're not choosing someone to make the first flag. They're just trying to get work done. So Washington is in the city for a, a brief window of time in the spring that the family reports this event to have occurred. And George Ross is very active in the defense of the Delaware. At this time, the colonies now, so they say it's spring of 76. The colonies have not yet declared independence, but they are nevertheless very fearful that the British will attack the city. And so George Ross and Robert Morris were both very involved in the defense of the Delaware. Washington, of course, has taken command of the Continental troops. And so I think that week they were in a mad frenzy trying to get things done in defense of Philadelphia and, uh, and for the Continental Army. And so other things they were doing at that time, for instance, was picking up tents that he had ordered from another Philadelphia upholster named Plunkett Fleeson. And so I imagine these three men on a very busy morning, kind of racing around the city, trying to get things done. And Betsy Ross was newly widowed. Her husband, John, had died in January. And John Ross was the nephew of George Ross. And so I imagine these men scurrying around trying to get their various, you know, to-do lists checked off. And George Ross knows that his niece could use a little income. And if they were going to be ordering flags, she could use the work. Women across the city, a woman named uh, Cornelia Bridges and another woman named Margaret Manny, were already getting flag contracts as the ships in the Continental Navy were beginning to rise. And so... I think that as they went about their business to many, many Philadelphia craftspeople, women and men, they also stopped into her shop, and she helped them out too. So she was self-employed? More or less. That part of the story is a little bit murky. She, she was trained as an upholsterer in the Art Street shop of a guy named John Webster, lived up the street from her parents. Um, a very sweet story in the family memory is that when she was a young girl, she went to visit her sister who was working in the upholstery shop. And while there, 
one of the girls is struggling with a piece of needlework, some task that she'd been assigned, and the um, enterprising young Betsy says, oh, I can do that, and so she does it. And Webster's very impressed with the quality of her work and goes to her mother. This is all meant to sort of foreshadow Betsy Ross as the prodigy, right, in Family Legend. So uh, Webster goes to her mother and asks if she could come work at the shop as well. And so that tells us a few things. That tells us that her sister is already working in an upholstery shop. She comes from a big artisanal family. Lots of them had different kinds of jobs. And that several girls were employed there. So she took a job sometime in the 1760s in this upholstery shop met uh, another young apprentice there, John Ross, who was the son of an Anglican clergyman. And in 72, I believe it was, his apprenticeship is completed and he leaves and starts his own shop. They marry in November of 73. And then he is um, killed, or dies anyway, unexpectedly in January of 76. So they've only been married two years. She in some accounts is said to have moved home with her parents also on Art Street. In others she's in the house now a few doors down where the Betsy Ross house is today or near today, near there today. And so she's either self-employed or she's living with her parents and employed elsewhere. That part of the story is a little bit muddy. So, but she had her own shop at, at the location that the flag Eventually, the eventually house? she does. Whether that's the case in spring of 76, that's not clear. Now, she was an apprentice at, at age what? How old was she? she well, they don't really date it, but she would have been about 12 or 13, maybe 14. And she wouldn't have been a formal apprentice, but she would have been an upholstery seamstress. So she was working in the same shop with males who were doing the same thing? Right, right. So men would have been in that shop, and they're learning to do things like um, stuffing a chair. If you think about those famous Philadelphia easy chairs, they're learning how to create that shape and stuff the furniture. Women in upholstery shops did things like, oh, they sewed the covers that would have gone on those chairs. They might have applied the fringe that, you know, enunciated the bottom of the chair. Uh, if you think about people who have seen those 18th century beds that are sort of, uh, have curtains all around them, they made those curtains. They made curtains for windows. Webster's shop uh, was an early innovator of Venetian blinds in Philadelphia. And so the men in the shop would have been making the blinds and hanging the blinds, but women would have been making curtains or cornices atop the blinds or applying the tape that linked the, uh, the little slats together. So there was a lot of work to be done in upholstery shops. And, and many shops that I've seen employed between four or six women at any given time to do all of that stitching. Was it unusual to have an industry that had males and females working together in the same Not shop? Not particularly. I think people um, assume that the past was more uh, gender segregated than it really was. A lot of people ask me whether it was unusual for her to have had a business, and that's not at all unusual. Many, many women worked in shops and as milliners and mantua makers or dressmakers, and oftentimes if their husband died, they continued on in the business. So you see a lot of women who you wouldn't know were upholsterers or worked in that business until an announcement appears in the newspaper saying my husband has died and I continue to take work at our address on Chestnut Street. So many, many women all around the city working alongside men. And I learned from your book that she was born on the first day of the Gregorian calendar. Yes, yes. Uh, a uh, effort to reform the calendar. I'm afraid I don't know all the details of that, but yes, January 1, 1752 was her birth date and the first time that January 1 was the first day of the new year. 
Did you find things about her that you didn't expect to find? I mean, what was so interesting about her other than making the first flag? Oh, so much of it was interesting to me. I hardly know where to begin. I, I was surprised to learn how close she really was to the revolution. We sort of come to see her, and I think because so many of the iconic pieces of artwork that imagine the making of the first flag, they place her in the parlor of her house. And so we don't really see her in a shop setting. And we forget that she left that parlor all the time. And so to think of her being as close to the revolution as she was, two, three of her husband's uncles were signers of the Declaration. So when she's learning about the revolution as it's unfolding, she's very close to it. Uh, her mother's side of the family were also very prominent people. Her mother's uncle was a man named Giles Knight, who served in the Pennsylvania Assembly. And another of her uncles was Abel James, who was one of the city's leading merchants. And so I was surprised to see just how connected she really would have been. And so that was something, I think, kind of important to the story, that it's not so unusual that they would find her shop or that she would find herself caught up in these events. Was she well-to-do growing up? Yes, I would say so. Not terribly, but today we might call them upper middle class. You know, her, her father was a house carpenter, did very well for himself in the building boom that Philadelphia saw in the mid-18th uh, century. And so she grew up in quite comfortable circumstances. Her fortunes declined from there on, I'm sorry to say, or, or they were uneven anyway. Her father's business was ruined by the occupation of Philadelphia. He was a carpenter and had a lumber yard. Um, at some point, it's not quite clear when, his lumberyard burned. But of course, during the British occupation, every molecule of wood was taken up. And so her family fortunes decline as a result of the revolution. Of course, she buries her first husband during the revolution and her second as well. Uh, she married again in 77 to a privateer. And he was captured at sea and died in an English prison. What's a privateer? A privateer is a, um, during the revolution, sailing ships were given sort of official permission to prey on other sailing ships. So something that would have been illegal under any other circumstances was made legal during the war to like disrupt trade. Like piracy? Like piracy. And so these ships would try to take other ships and capture the food that they were trying to transport, the goods that they were trying to transport, you know, basically disrupt any, any advantage that the army could see and disrupt trade in general. And so that's what Ashburn was doing with uh, what's called a letter of mark, which is given by the government to say, yes, you have permission. Ashburn's husband a number two. Ashburn's husband. This is husband number two. And when the ship is captured, it's subject to all kinds of rules. That has to been, it has to be brought into port. It's auctioned. The crew gets a take from the proceeds once it's, uh, the goods are auctioned. And so for men like Ashburn, you can serve the cause, and it's also a plausible way to earn a living because they might make a little something depending on what they take. So, but unfortunately for him, he gets captured and imprisoned in England and dies there. According to family story, and some of this is plausibly true, 
the man who informs Betsy that her second husband died is John Claypool, who will become her third husband. So we know Claypool and Ashburn were together in that prison. Uh, Claypool had also decided to serve as a privateer, had also been captured at sea. And so the two men we know were in prison together, and Claypool thought very highly of Ashburn. And so I can easily imagine him coming back to the city, and it would have been a courtesy call to the widow to say, I was with your husband when he died, he was a valiant man, you know, that kind of thing. And very quickly, widow Ashburn and John Claypool you know, begin a courtship and they, they marry soon after. And so they're married in May of 83. And that becomes the partnership that gives her her children. They have five daughters together and uh, are married until his death in 1817. Does she have any living descendants? She has many, many living descendants, many, many. And I've met lots of them and they're, they've just been lovely to me, I have to say, for someone who, you know, they could regard with suspicion, you know, a historian coming in to say that their family story isn't quite correct. They've been very generous and have, you know, shown me family papers and artifacts that are still in the family and, yes. Is the name Claypool still around? No, well, all of her, all of her children were daughters. And so there are many, many surnames that, um, that are family descendants, but not Claypools. And in fact, when I, when I first had the glimmer of an idea for this book, I, I live in Western Massachusetts in a very small town. And I told uh, a woman in my book club that I was thinking of doing this project. And she said, oh, my son plays with a descendant of Betsy Ross. And I thought, well, this can't be. You know, what are the odds? She must have misunderstood or misremembered something. Well, no, lo and behold, my neighbor, about 100 yards up the street, was a descendant of Betsy Ross. And often when I give talks, descendants come. It's been lovely. How long was Betsy Ross known as Betsy Ross? Well, that's a very good question. Not very long, so it's unclear why we remember her that way today. She, of course, was only Betsy Ross until she remarried in 77, so about four years. But for some reason that I really can't put my finger on, she comes to us in legend as Betsy Ross, although the children who gave us the legend only knew her as Elizabeth Claypool, and that was her name for far longer. So what was she born? What was her Oh, Griscom. Elizabeth Griscom. Yep. Her father was Samuel, and her mother was Rebecca James, and, uh, and then she married John Ross. Did so. they call her Betsy? Her signature is always Elizabeth. There are only a couple of places where her signature survives, and of course, in a formal piece of writing, it's Elizabeth. So it's the legend, really, that calls her Betsy Ross, and I have never seen someone refer to her, I'm trying to think if this is true, as Betsy. The most informal reference I've seen to her is Aunt Claypool, which I also think is very sweet. Did she write anything? No, she has left almost nothing. There was one letter from her that was known in New Jersey in the 1980s, but is not known today. Its location is no longer known. And so I haven't seen that, but apparently it was a, you know, just a note home saying thank you. It was lovely to see you. Great visit. Her, she had family from her father's side in New Jersey. Uh, she signed a couple of letters as a member of the Free Quaker meeting here in Philadelphia, and she has signed some probate materials, but that's about it uh, from her hand. Are there any portraits of her? No, there are not, which is, you know, very disappointing to me. I would love to see an image of her. But you do point out in images, um, 
Betsy Ross enjoys the dubious distinction of being one of only four figures of United States history, together with Paul Revere, Daniel Boone, and Elvis Presley, immortalized as a Pez head. Isn't that excellent? Really? Yeah. Son of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, again, it's a post-bicentennial thing. And, you know, this is before, now we think of Abigail Adams, and we have other figures from that period that we can turn to when we want to remember the Revolutionary Era. But for a long time, Betsy Ross was kind of it. So if people were trying to come up with a woman from that period to depict, that's who they chose. She was a Quaker? She was a Quaker. She was raised a Quaker. Her parents were both Quakers. An interesting part of the book, a little corner of the book, is she was disowned from the Quaker faith when she married John Ross. He's an Anglican. The Quaker faith at that time required you marry within the faith. And they had a procedure for when one married outside the faith, which was a violation of what's called the discipline, the Quaker discipline, which was a set of practices that the Quaker community had formulated to keep the community intact. And so much has been made of this elopement to New Jersey. Um, it's the height of the tea crisis, and you know these young lovers eloped to New Jersey. They're married at Hug Tavern. And so that was part of the story that I sort of knew and much has been made of that for what it tells us about her, the little glimpse you get into her life. Well, as I researched her family's history with the Quaker Church, I learned that not only had her parents been disowned from marrying out of unity, but all of her sisters before her had married out of unity. So at the time that Betsy eloped, they were four for four. All of their <laughs> girls had violated the rules. And so the one little glimpse you get from that that I really love is that in the, in the Quaker practice, when someone from the community has aired, a pair of friends comes to the house and they talk with you about what has happened. And they try to determine whether you're regretful. And if you are and you show true remorse and you're willing to go back to the meeting and say, yes, what I did was wrong and it won't happen again, unity is restored. And so as her sisters violated unity, they... Um, had various experiences with that practice. And two of her older sisters managed to drag it out for over a year. People would come to the house, they'd say, how are you feeling? And the sisters would say, well, yes, you know, I'm regretful, but I'm not sure I'm regretful enough. And, you know, they would kind of drag it out month after month after month. And so, well, typically that procedure might take about six months to unfold. Uh, two of her sisters dragged it out for over a year. But when Betsy airs and uh, marries Ross out of, out of unity, she instantly says, we don't need to do that. I'm going to be joining him. And they worship at Christ Church. So you see her, one of, the, one of the things I suggest in the book is that for people who know the Myers-Briggs typology, J is the quality for being decisive. And I see Betsy Ross as a very decisive woman. You say here, few hints survive to tell us about anything about Betsy's personality, but in things marital, at least, she seems decisive. That's right. That's right. She made a quick decision to marry um, Ashburn. Those courtships, too, were very brief. She made a quick decision to marry Claypool. And then, you know, when she married John Ross, she just didn't look back. So what I see, in answer to your question, about that is that once she left the Quaker faith, she worships for a while with Ross at Christ Church. Her second husband she marries at uh, Gloria Day. Her third husband, it's not quite clear where they worship, but then they join the Free Quaker meeting. What is Gloria Day? Oh, it's, a, it's another congregation that's on the, near the waterfront, was near the waterfront in Philadelphia, that tended to serve the working class community down that way. I don't know that they worship there. I just know that they were married there. 
So I don't, so I see her sort of drifting with the wind for a while. She's not committed to any particular congregation in town or no particular religious organization once she's disowned. But when the Free Quaker meeting comes around, it's a gathering of people who have been disowned through the revolution. Many of them for activities they undertook during the revolution. The Quaker faith also had a prescription against violence. And so people who had embraced the rebellion also found themselves disowned. But many were also disowned for other things, like Betsy Ross was, for you know an incorrect marriage. So she and John Claypool drift into this Free Quaker meeting pretty close to its founding. And I see in that an embrace of freedom of conscience. One of their core principles is a rejection of disownment itself. They don't believe that any members of the Quaker community can sit in judgment of another. And so that's the one principle that I see her embracing through all of that is this idea that people need to be able to follow their conscience. And she stays with the Free Quaker meeting till the bitter end. Uh, after the war, people eventually start drifting back to their original meetings, and the Free Quaker community sort of dissolves. And legend has it, again, this can't be documented archivally, but legend has it that Betsy Ross and the son of founder Samuel Weatherhill, Weatherill, a, a man named John Weatherill, are the last two members to continue to try to meet. And in the legend, they decide that two does not a meeting make, and, and meetings for worship cease at that time. And, and Betsy would have been older by that date. And I don't know whether that story is strictly true, but it it's consistent with my picture of her, which would be doggedly loyal to the Weatherells, who also stood by her family in tough times. And so I could see her staying with them until they decide that it's no longer going to be a meeting for worship. It still exists today as a philanthropic organization. You, you say in the book that it was uncommon for women, for widows to remarry? Not altogether uncommon, but certainly uncommon for them to do it as quickly as she did. She's, again, you know, the, I've forgotten the details precisely, but it's about six years, I want to say, average time to remarriage for widows of the Quaker community. And she remarries always in a year or two. You know, she's certainly courting within a year. So it's just, again, it's much, much more uh, rapid than average. Did any of her family members write down things about her that you could glean some of her personality from? Only a little bit, and it's mostly these younger generations, and so the grandchildren, the nephews. Once they started to try to document the story of Betsy Ross, the legend, they wrote down some things like, um, oh, some of them recalled that she would send them to the almshouse with little pieces of bread and, and treats. And that can be construed as just a little effort to document her as a generous, you know, caring person. But in fact, two of her sisters died in the almshouses of Philadelphia, so she would have had reason to know what conditions were like there and to want to continue to support those people. So you get a little of that. You get um, little shreds of family jokes that survive in the affidavits. You get a little glimpse into her, into her life. She used to make the children read to her, practice their, you know, reading aloud. So you get a little bit of a glimpse into Grandma Claypool. She was a snuff user? Yes, very common in its no, day. Was that sniffing snuff? I or, think or so. I have to say I'm not an expert on snuff, but I believe it was sniffing. You say that when, when she died, one of the things in her uh, uh, 
the longings that was left was a snuff box. Yeah, a little, um, yes, her snuff box survives and a little, a little bladder of snuff that her grandson had bought the wrong kind. And so apparently she tucked that in a drawer because she didn't want to hurt his feelings and then this turns up after she's passed. So you see a little glimpse of that too. Now when you decided to sit down and write a, a biography of Betsy Ross, uh, where'd you start? Oh, well my first step was to go straight to the Betsy Ross house. I, in my uh, job at the University of Massachusetts, direct our public history program, which is museum studies in large part. And so I knew and know that museums generate a lot of insight. You know, there are a lot of research comes to museums and is done by museums as they work to support their interpretation. And so I came down here to Philadelphia and went to the office of Lisa Mulder, who was at that time the curator, and she opened the files to me and said, here's what we know. And so I spent an afternoon looking through the files and I could see that a lot was known and that there was enough to do a book. And so I pretty much decided then and there that, that I just was the right person at the right time to tell her story. What kind of files? What, what did you see? Oh, goodness. They had, you know, photocopies of receipts that people have turned up over the years for work that she had done for various agencies and private clients. They had developed interpretive materials that led me to other secondary sources about her life in Philadelphia. And so I could, I could just see that there was going to be enough once I dug into the archive myself. And so then I came down to the city and spent about six months and read every shred I could find in the Quaker records and at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and Christchurch and just tried to look for her in any place she could plausibly be found. And it, I found her often. It, you know, I could find her without a lot of digging. It sort of surprised me, in fact, how quickly she came to me through those records. And there's been no other adult biography of Betsy Ross? No, there hasn't. For, I think, a couple of different reasons. One is the history of women's history in the country. Some people may know that Women's history is really product of the social movements of the 1960s and 70s. So as the women's movement gathers steam, of course, there's going to be interest in women's history. So the 1970s, 1980s, we see the first work of women's history scholarship. But at that time, historians are trying to demonstrate the importance of women's history. And they want to take on pretty weighty topics. So Betsy Ross, by that time, had been seen really as a as a character, a quaint figure, but nothing plausible about it. And so there was a good bit of derision really attached to Betsy Ross by the 1970s. And no young historian, you know, hoping for a career in the business would have taken on Betsy Ross as a topic. It just would have been career ending. But that's a long time ago now. And career so, ending. Career ending. At the time it would have been career ending. You would not have been taken seriously as a scholar by trying to recover that story. But I think more importantly, at that time, I think you couldn't have done it. And even, I really think even five or 10 years ago, you couldn't have done it. And what's changed in between are the advent of these powerful databases. And so a lot of my research was done on databases, some that recover actual primary sources. So there's something called early American imprints that contains, keyword searchable, everything published in America before 1800. There's another database called America's Historical Newspapers that lets you search by keyword all, not all, but it's very, very complete of these newspapers from her lifetime. 
And so finding ads from upholsterers becomes easy. John Claypool's obituary, for some reason, appears in newspapers up and down the East Coast. I wouldn't have thought to look for that. And had I thought to, it would have taken me a long time. And so you can find sources much more easily than you could have even 10 years ago. And you can find archival material much more easily. So if I want to find out whether you know, this or that paper survive in any library, it's now very easy to find that out you know, without sending ground mail letters to all of the relevant repositories and waiting for you know, replies. So I really think that technology has made this project possible in a way that it really wasn't even, even in the very recent past because you can do this searching that you just couldn't have done. Is she an interesting story, the, the flag story aside? I mean, is she an interesting story whether or not she made the first flag? Yeah, well, I, of course, find her to be. What she lets us see is how the revolution was experienced by everyday families. So as, as Philadelphians have to take sides, you can see her family ripped apart by that. Her parents side, the Quakers, being compelled by their faith to try to stay neutral, try to stand clear. Her husband's side, all of these Scots were very active revolutionaries, so you see her being pulled in two directions. As you know, families were in this period. You know, we think of our, our own times as very uh, politically dicey, and you don't know quite what to say to who because you don't know quite where they stand on the issues. And when you think about the way that people tread lightly today and think of what was happening as the country hurtled towards rebellion, you can see that through her life. And then, of course, we see her through the occupation of Philadelphia, a very, um, a very difficult time for lots of families. She was in Philadelphia. She, was, she stayed. Occupation. I'm pretty sure she stayed in Philadelphia through the occupation. Again, it's a tiny shred or two of evidence that leads me to think that, but I think she did stay. And, of course, there was great deprivation in the city during those years. Would she have been a widow during the British yes. occupation? Yes. That was before she Right. Remarried. She would have been alone during that time. Well, she remarried. Well, she, re no, she remarried in 77. So, but Ashburn, being a sailor, it's hard to know how much time they were together. So I think she's alone for much of that. Presumably, he's at sea. So we see her experience that. And then as, as the nation begins to take shape, and she and her third husband try to find footing in it. You see their business blossom, and then you see John have his stroke. And so her fortunes are just up and down. You kind of never know what the next year is going to bring, which is how people lived then. You know, we didn't have, um, you know, accounts in a bank for a rainy day. It was really, you didn't know what the next year was going to bring. Well, you point out in your book that late in life she opened an account at PSFS, yes. the Philadelphia Savings Yes, Society. that was so exciting to me. One of my favorite moments of the entire book was finding Betsy Ross's bank account. So, um, yeah, that was very exciting. So, yes, I think her, her uh, son-in-law probably urged her to do that. They were not in on the ground floor of that, but I think in time he thought that was a sound thing to do, and so she and her niece and her son-in-law are all in the PSFS. So, yeah. Now, her first husband, John Ross, was she and he in business together? Yeah, and they were a perfect pair because, because of the way that the trades were sort of gendered. He would have mastered one set of skills in the upholstery trade, and she would have mastered another. And so they didn't really need to have apprentices when they first started out. Like, between the two of them, they could cover the tasks that they could reasonably expected to do. They have one helper in their household in, um, 
in 75, who is a young child, an eight-year-old child, looks to be a child of color, although they were certainly not slave owners, but they might have been using the services of some African-American child to do small errands around their shop, to go places for them, pick things up, bring things back, maybe to help with the housework while Betsy was focused on the sewing. So they had a little bit of help in their house. And you start to see the blossoming of their firm. They get a big order from Benjamin Chu. Everything's looking good. And then, of course, the uh, rebellion comes and, and John dies. And so you see her on that moment where it looks like this is all going to work out well. And then she finds herself widowed. The, the death of John Ross seems a little uh, murky. Yes, it is. And, and I'll, someday maybe there'll be a, a record that will shed some light on it. In the family legend, he dies while he's guarding munitions. There's some explosion that causes some injury, and he dies of his wounds. But it looks unlikely that that happened. There's no record of such an explosion. There's no newspaper reference to such an explosion. I was unable to find any reference in the kinds of sources where you think you would to that kind of event in the season that it would have happened for him to die in January. And, and since I don't, I wonder if the family story isn't somehow confused on that point. Now again, these are her grandchildren who are hearing stories in the 18-teens about something that happened to their grandmother's first husband in the 70s. And so you can imagine that they have that a little bit mixed up. So the family legend itself is not much to go on, but I wonder if there's not some other episode there. One of the family stories has some dim memory that he was perhaps um, insane at the time of his death. His mother was? His mother was as well, and that's firm. His mother died in the Pennsylvania asylum. She was committed for lunacy. He did not grow up with a mother as a strong parent. She was committed fairly early on. And so there is some history of mental illness in his family. And then one of these family stories remembers that he himself was not quite in his right mind at the time of his death. That he, the, the phrase from that family affidavit is that he wrote vast quantities of senseless matter just at the, on the eve of his death. So, so there is a bit of mystery around that. But again, as there would be, because those children were so far removed from those events that I'm not at all surprised they had that mixed up. Now, with the, the Ross upholstery shop, at the time, what kind of work would someone have taken to them as opposed to having done at themselves? Mm, that's a good question. Upholstery work would have involved very fine fabrics. And in the 18th century, fabric was incredibly expensive. And so people were not inclined to try very much themselves, especially when you could hire somebody to do it reasonably inexpensively. And so, you know, as she made, for instance, a big part of her trade was making chair covers. We'd call them slip covers today. People in the 18th century, if you had spent a lot of money on, say, those Chippendale-style chairs that we see in museums a lot, you have that fine fabric put on the seat, fringe maybe around the trim. People like Betsy would have made covers for those because you wouldn't want that fine fabric exposed all the time. And so people in their everyday living would have had a nice slip cover on that chair. And then if you're having an event and you want the parlor to look nice, you'd take the slip covers off or you'd take them off in season. So she would make the kinds of things that would protect the finer fabric beneath in a more um, 
an inexpensive fabric, those kinds of things. Families just didn't need to do that for themselves. If you could afford the chair beneath it, you could certainly afford to have somebody make a slip cover for it. You say that um, to, toward the end of her life, she continued to wear the accoutrements of her trade, the silver hook at her waist from which her scissors and pinball still dangled, but she was no longer able to sew. What, what were the tools of the trade at the time? Oh, well, many things. And uh, we don't know about all of them, or I don't know about all of them, although the house, I should say, has reinterpreted the upholstery shop to show much more what it would have been like at Betsy's time. So now I can see that in a way that I couldn't have before. But upholsters used all kinds of things like, you know, long hooks that help them stuff mattresses. Mattress stuffing was a very important part of the upholstery trade. People had mattresses of hair and feathers and straw for different qualities. And people like Betsy would have stuffed them. And so they had long needles to help make that possible that helped them distribute the material within it. Um, those mattresses for people who wanted a very comfortable rest would have been placed on what's called a sacking bottom. Uh, many people know the rope beds uh, that you see in historic house museums. Uh, the phrase sleep tight allegedly refers to the, you know, making sure your ropes are nice and tight so your mattress is firm. Um, but a better rest would be provided by the sacking bottoms, which were like a canvas that was stretched across the bed. And so those were secured to the wood frame through little eyelets or grommets that the uh, upholstery seamstress also would have made. That required a long, sharp needle. So a uh, acquaintance of mine, after a talk that I gave recently in New England, produced a special thimble that was worn on a leather, kind of a leather sling that went around your hand to also help with the pushing of those hard needles. And they were used also in sailmaking shops. And I don't doubt that women like Betsy Ross would have also used that to push that heavy needle through that you know, dense fabric. So those kinds of things, heavy shears, I'm, I'm sure of a range of sizes they would have also used in their work. Where would she have gotten the material to work with? A lot of times the client would have supplied it. Um, in this period, craftspeople responded to their clients' wishes more than steered their clients' wishes. I think today we tend to think of artisans also like mantua makers as tastemakers, you know, that you go in and they'll tell you what you want. But in this period, really, the clients who tend to be well-heeled people, well-traveled people, also connected to friends in other cities and abroad, they're getting the styles as people tell them, you know, pink is all the rage this year, or stripes are in, flowers are out. And so they'll come into a shop and say, here's my fabric, and I'd like you to do this with it. So a lot of times the client supplied that. And it was, there were a lot of shops like Betsy Ross's at the time? Oh, yeah. They were probably in Philadelphia in her lifetime. I mean, the numbers wax and wane, and they, they sort of supply different levels of service, but certainly a half dozen to a dozen at any given time participating somehow in the upholstery trades. If it's a widow who's just doing the sort of mattress making and, and curtains and slip covers, to the full-blown shops of people like Plunkett Fleeson who are serving the top-of-the-line clients. You say she never owned a house. Never owned a house. Always rented. That's right. How long was she in the house that we know as the Betsy Ross house now? She came there. When, when she came to that street is a little bit murky, but she's certainly there. Of course, also I should say that, you know, during the Revolution, record-keeping is not people's top priority. And so we don't really know because there's a gap in things like tax lists that would have told us where people were living in that time. But she comes there sometime between 76 and 81. She's certainly there by, I believe it's 1780 is the earliest we can place her on that street. 
and then she's there until she and her second husband move I want to say that's 85. So they moved down to a house that's right by the city tavern. It's no longer standing today, but they would have lived four doors up from the city tavern um, for a long time. And then in 92, 1792, while John Claypool's at sea again, Betsy moves the family to Front Street. And so they'll be on Front Street then for basically the rest of her working days. As an older woman, she moves in with one of her daughters who's up in Abington. And so she spends some time up there. And uh, then when they feel like they can't take care of her any longer, she comes back to Philadelphia uh, and moves in with her daughter Jane Canby on Cherry Street. And that's the house where she'll end her days. Well, you say she lived on that street where the Betsy Ross house is. Did she live in the Betsy Ross house? She, there's, some, there's some discussion about that. And uh, there's a researcher, researcher named James Duffin who looked very carefully at the tax records. And he finds, and I accept this, that she probably lived in the house next door that when the family started looking up and down Art Street at the time that they're trying to settle the memory of her, you know, most of those 18th century buildings on Art Street are gone. And so I think that they looked at that house that was extant and said, yeah, that's her house. Archival evidence seems to indicate that, in fact, it was the house next door. But as I like to point out, we know for sure that she lived in at least three houses on Art Street. And so... I try to encourage people not to get too focused on any one thing because most of those houses were a good bit alike. And so that house tells us as much as any would about what her experience was like. You have a picture in the book that says the Betsy Ross house on Philadelphia's Arch Street uh, as it appeared in 1898. So the one that's in this picture is the one that's known now as the Betsy Correct. Ross house? Yes, right. Well, I also want to read this part. You say, a potential cache of papers was lost in the 1880s when an inhabitant of the Arch Street home that today houses the museum found an old satchel filled with papers, some dating back to the early 17th century, which were mistaken for trash and burned. Isn't that crushing? Every historian's nightmare. Uh, isn't that terrible? I know, I know. I've read more things about things that, you know, like this letter that was known in the 80s that were once known but are not known now. Although I do hope that that'll work in the reverse. Her... Um, her daughter, Clarissa, the partner in her business, moved out to Iowa. And I have this pipe dream that someday Betsy's ledgers are going to turn up in Fort Madison, Iowa, that the historical society out there just doesn't yet know that that's what they have. So historians can dream. We've only talked a little bit about uh, husband number three, uh, John Claypool. Three, John Claypool, John yes. John Claypool. Uh, what should we know about him? Oh, well, gosh, I came to be quite fond of him in the course of my research. The... The family memory that survives of him paints the picture of a lovely, generous, warm man, quick with a joke, liked to sing songs, and I can really imagine him being a breath of fresh air to Betsy Ross at the time that they married. Um, people have pointed out the haste with which they married and have asked me whether that's a product of her needing a husband to support her, that it was basically not a love match, that you know she just needed to be married. How old was she at the time of marriage number three? She would have been 31, and she had a little girl who was uh, her daughter with her second husband. She had two daughters with her second husband. One died as an infant, so she was a widow with a little girl to support. So you can see, you know, she would have been anxious about the future, anxious about her income. But everything I read about John Claypool just makes me think that he would have been a very winning personality and somebody that would have been, after all of those years of grief and hardship, somebody that she would have been very happy with. 
And so we learned that about him. He was a joiner. He was a member of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. He was active in prison reform. You mean he was a joiner of associations? Yes, yes. You know, like right, exactly, right. Not a not an artisan, mm -hmm. um, but uh, he was trained as a tanner, but active in civic life. Like to be out there. Abolition Society. Yeah. You mentioned. Yeah. Early on, he was a member of that and became a member. They had a the way that they operated is that different members would basically become members of this acting committee and be sort of intensely involved in the activities of the committee and then you'd cycle off. And so he did his term on the acting committee, very involved in aiding uh, people, African Americans whose freedom was at risk. People who believed themselves to be free but who somebody was claiming that they were enslaved or people who were trying to take them out of Pennsylvania and their future was uncertain. And what, what, roughly what years would this have been? He would have been... This would have been 87, I think his most active period was 1787 to 89, thereabouts. So quite so, a few years before the Civil War. Oh yes, well before the Civil War, yeah. And um, so you see him just being active on behalf of the less fortunate, which is also you know, a principle of the Quaker faith. By then they are, they are part of the free Quaker community. And a prison reform society? Yeah, and again, as a, a former prisoner himself, you know, as having been a prisoner of war, I think he was very alert to the conditions in, in the city's prisons. And so he joined the prison reform society that also worked on behalf of people who were in the, in the city's prisons. And un, you know, unclothed, you know, people who, uh, there was a lot of talk about people who sold their clothes in order to get food and drink while members or while inhabitants of the city's prisons. And so he was active on their behalf, um, gave money to support other causes. So you see him as somebody who's very active and also very energetic on behalf of their household. He did what he could to expand the upholstery business. Now his training would not have been in upholstery per se, but as a tanner, he grew up in a tan yard, his dad was a tanner, he knew a little bit about the furniture trades and he was related to the Claypool family who were very important Philadelphia furniture makers. And so he knew his way around that business and I think was eager to parlay his wife's skills uh, as much as he could. And so they started dealing in ready-made furniture and they sold wallpaper. There's an ad that appears at one point where they're also taking in borders and I have to wonder, you know, what Betsy thought of that idea, if she was on board with that or not, but he's, you know, eager again to, you know, amplify the household's income. Did, so you really see him. Did he do upholstery work also? I don't think that he did, unless she, he was never trained in the trade, so he would not have had the skills to do things like stuff, furniture, or make Venetian blinds. So at best, he would have been able to sort of manage the shop, but I don't think he would have had the skills to actually do anything. How many children did they have? They had five children. Uh, their, their last daughter, Harriet, died in her infancy, but they had four living daughters. And then, of course, the children of Ashburn. Eliza was Ashburn's surviving daughter, so they raised five girls. And grandchildren? Many, many. Lots of them. Uh, how long were uh, Betsy Ross or Betsy and uh, John married? They married in 1783, and he died in 1817. So, a good long while. He had a stroke of some severity around 1800, but uh, one of the, another moment that I will never forget in the course of the research, I, I was aware that he had had the stroke around 1800, and in the early 19th century, you see them enter the 
accounts of the Free Quaker meeting as recipients of charity. You know, they've got to fund schooling for the grandchildren. They give money for John's board, for John's shoes, for his clothes. And so you get a sense that the household is really struggling and that they need this, the charitable support, charitable support of their church. So I've wondered about that, and different sources refer to him as being paralyzed. And late in the research, I met a wonderful woman who had, at first, Betsy's sewing table we thought she might have. That turned out to be too late of a table to be Betsy's. But while we visited her house, she reached into a closet and brought out John Claypool's cane. And so here is this amazing cane. I believe it's bamboo. And it's engraved IS to JC, which means it was a gift from his son-in-law, Isaac Silliman, Eliza's daughter, or Eliza's husband. He was a ship captain, so I imagine that this wood came from somewhere around the world, and it's carved with a dog's head at the top. So I imagine Isaac, you know, board aboard ship, makes this cane, brings it home, and gives to his father-in-law. And on it, engraved, nice as can be, is John Claypool, 74th South Front Street. And the date, which was 1811. Now that tells me that as late as 1811, Claypool is still getting around the city, and he's getting around enough that Isaac's worried he'll forget the cane someplace, and hence it must have the return to address. And so you get this tiny little glimpse into the elderly John Claypool moving around the city in that time. So he must have been, he must have been all right if he could do that. Uh, he, he also, family memory remembers him as a disabled war veteran, they claim, I was not able to document this, but they claim that he was at Valley Forge and that he was also at the Battle of Brandywine. And so he was allegedly wounded by um, shrapnel, I believe. And so they have, in family memory, he's often depicted as somebody who's disabled during the marriage. But I found that he worked for the customs agency during the uh, period when Philadelphia was the capital and his job was to inspect the holds of ships. And so when a ship would come into the city, they would present their manifest and say, here's what is in the ship. And then John's job was to take that manifest and go into the ship and say, oh, yeah, you know, 30 hogs had a coffee, 30 hogs had a coffee, 30 barrels of oranges, 30 barrels of oranges. If you could talk to Betsy Ross, what would you ask her? What would I ask her? Well, I would ask her if she made the first flag. <laughs> I would ask her about that day. You know, what... Um, what were the events on those day because on that day because I suspect her children do have elements of that story muddled. I bet she would say, "I can't believe they said it was George Ross. It was George Reed." You know, I, I wonder what they would, you know, what she would say that they had gone wrong. And she lived to a ripe old age. She did, eighty-six. So yeah, she is that correct? Seventeen fifty-two to eighteen thirty-six, eighty-four. Well, we are out of time. We've been talking with Marla Miller. She's the author of this book, Betsy Ross and the Making of America. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.